Wow. What do you say? Other than glory, glory, hallelujah. Well, we come to the next passage in Mark. Mark chapter 2. So if you want to open your Bibles, you can turn there. Mark chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 13 through 17. And if I would have to uh, give this passage a title or a theme, I, I would call it when, when God is not religious enough or offended by God. When God's not religious enough. This is the story, probably a very familiar story, about Levi the tax collector, better known as Matthew. But, but in the passage, Jesus not only offends the religious leaders and scribes of the day, but, but he angers the crowd in, in general. And the primary reason is because in their minds, Jesus is not religious enough. He offends them because he gives grace to a very wicked man. There's no question about that. His, his wickedness is very, very... Public, it's very well known, it's, it's not questioned in, in, in any way. And, and Jesus gives grace to, to this man and then even goes to, to this man's home and fellowships not only with him, but with his like-minded friends, other well-known sinners and, and tax collectors. Now, these people that that Jesus has, has a lunch with, and, and Matthew or Levi himself is, is not uh, some small-time Sunday night church skipper or, or a sipping saint, as they say. I mean, these are not, he's not called uh, a publican or a sinner for, for low-grade sins. I mean, these individuals that, that Jesus, that will see Jesus give grace to today are well-known extortioners, uh, liars, abusers of widows and orphans and the poor. And Jesus is seen in this passage sharing a, a casual meal with them um, as if a friend. And, and the people are appalled by it. I, I mean, angered. Uh, they're... They're offended. Has God ever been too religious for you? I mean, when you read something in the Word, have you ever been offended by what it says or what, what you perceive that, that, God, that God says? Have, have, you ever, have you ever just read something and, and been angered by it? Or, or, or maybe you read it and you thought, there's no way that can be true. When I was... Then I was preparing this morning. I thought about uh, I thought about a time in my life when I was when I was reading a book by by a theologian, and I I just I didn't. It wasn't that I didn't understand what he was saying. I didn't like what he was saying, but 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 I I couldn't really argue with it because it was right there in the passage of scripture. But I mean, I was angry. I literally. I was angry. I was arguing with 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 these pages. I mean, out loud. I'm I'm talking to this book. I'm glad nobody saw me. And and just and at one point just threw it. Maybe somebody you've had that situation where somebody gives you an interpretation that that you really don't like, and and you 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 you're offended by it. I can remember a man asking me one time when he found out that. Um, 
that I was Baptist, he said, uh, I was at a car lot. And as I normally uh, do, try to uh, stir up a conversation where you can maybe share Christ or see where the person uh, is. And um, he said, yeah, he, he's a Christian. And he asked me where I went to church, and I told him. And, and whenever he heard, when he heard Baptist, he said, you don't believe in that eternal security nonsense, do you? Now, I mean, it's just a, it's a preloaded question, you know, for, for sure. And I said, if you mean that, that someone who has truly been born again is kept by God's grace because it's all grace from start to finish, yes, I do. And just as a side note, don't ever agree with, with what somebody, with just a definition. Always define what you believe because Whatever their definition of eternal security is or whatever it is may be totally off the, the wall. So state what you believe. So I did that and I said, yes, I, I believe that. This is what I believe because the Bible teaches it, not because I'm a Baptist. And I can remember still this day, it's been years ago, I can remember the look on his face. I mean, I mean, it was, it was just fire in his eyes. It was, it was offense. It was anger. He was, he was offended by that by that truth or that, that position. And, and he turned and he walked away muttering something like, well, you better endure to the end because he's not going to let you in if, uh, if you don't. Because of our depravity, because of, of, of being uh, uh, hardwired for, for pride, there are times that God offends us. And, and usually that offense is, is in, is in one of two areas. It's either law or, or grace. We're hardwired as rebels, and so we chafe at, at right and wrong in God's, God's law. And we're also earners. We, we want credit before God. We want to, we, we want to say, yes, it's Jesus, but, but I got a little bit to do with it in there, in there somewhere. Unbelievers typically are the ones that get offended at God's right to tell them what's right or wrong. Um, they, uh, you just look at the protests that, that happen all over, not just right now, but, but prior, whenever, whenever the, the issues surround something to do with morality. I mean, people get very angry whenever they're confronted with moral absolutes. They get, they get very angry whenever they're confronted with, with, with the fact that the Bible says that that sex outside of marriage is, is wrong. I mean, they just get furious. How dare you tell me how to live my life? And you're not telling them. God's telling them. But they, they, they rebel against that. They're offended by that. But religious people don't get offended by the law. We, religious people love the law. They get offended by grace. They don't like it. Grace offends our pride, it, 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 uh, it attacks that, that, that self-earner in us, that work, the, the working to, to get there. And the, and the greater the grace, the, the greater the, the offense. One pastor said, if, if you preach grace, you better get ready to duck or pucker, because somebody's either gonna wanna kiss you or deck you, one of the two. And it's, it's true. One writer said it this way, unbelievers are offended by God condemning good people. And religious people are offended by God forgiving 
bad people. Well, that's exactly what, what's going on in the Gospel of Mark today in this passage. It's, a, it's an example of God's amazing grace and the offense that's created by that grace whenever he, when he gives it to undeserving sinners. Jesus calls a well-known sinner to be his disciple, and he has a lunch with a number of his friends, and in that lunch he shares with them how they can become one of his followers, and the religious leaders are livid. They're insulted by grace. And the slur that, that is, that's not just here in Mark, but it's, but it's throughout the Gospels, is Jesus is a friend of sinners, as if that's a horrible thing. And in their minds, it, it was a, a horrible thing. And from the passage that we're going to see today, God's going to show us how amazing, how transforming His grace is, and also expose the reason our hearts are so offended by grace. Jesus came to give grace to people who need it, and those who are offended at grace, Jesus will show us are actually the ones that need it the most. They think that they are the righteous ones, and in reality, they're the ones in, that stand in, in very, in very need. Unless you think that this is not that serious of a matter, this is, this, 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 this passage, this theme, the fact that Jesus was a friend of sinners and being offended by His grace, is exactly what led the religious leaders and the Jews to reject Jesus as the Messiah, and it's ultimately what led to his murder. That's how serious this this is. And that's how angry a person can get at God's grace. It can lead them to reject God as he presents himself in the Bible and cause them to continue on the path to hell, rejecting the very thing that they need to to get into into heaven. So Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Clay read it for us this morning. And the outline of the passage is very simple. There, there are two scenes. There, there, there are just a few verses here. And the first scene is Jesus encountering Levi the tax collector by the sea in his tax booth, and he calls him to follow him. He calls him to salvation. That's scene one. And then Mark immediately, beginning in verse 15, transports us from the seaside to Matthew's house where many tax collectors and sinners are reclining with, with, with Jesus as he has lunch with, with them and Matthew's sinful friends. And the passage teaches us, last time we saw the paralytic, the religious scribes are, are offended by the fact that, that, that God says Jesus can forgive sin. He has the authority to forgive sin. This passage teaches us that Jesus is a friend of sinners. He not only is the one who can forgive sin, he's the friend of, of sinners. And here's exactly how you can outline it. There is grace offered in verses 13 and 14, and then that grace offends in verses 15 through 17. Let's look at this grace offered. Look if you would at verse 13. He, that's Jesus, went out again by the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. 
And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. It says Jesus went out by the went out by the sea, and all the crowd was following. This fickle mob is still is still clamoring to get close to Christ to see what they can get from him. And you still see Jesus, even in this passage, not giving them what they want, but what they need. It says that he was teaching them. The crowd was coming, and Jesus is graciously giving them what they need, which is the word of God. And and the town is, is Capernaum. It's, it's one of the many villages around the Sea of Galilee, and they're, they're, just, they're, they're just stationed in, in, in little coves and in little places all around the sea, all connected by a footpath or, or, or a road. And Capernaum is, is, is one of the most significant cities there. Galilee was, was the waypoint uh, from the north to the south. Everyone, if you wanted to go... If you wanted to go north, came through Galilee, and if you were north, wanted to come south uh, down to Egypt, you came through through Galilee. And Capernaum was the first town that a traveler that a traveler stopped in. It was a customs center, it, and therefore it was a significant tax station in those days. Just like today, there there were import and export taxes, and Capernaum was the place where where they were collected. And so Matthew has a very significant role here. This is not like collecting taxes in Boone County, West Virginia. I mean, this is, this is a significant town. If you, if you brought in goods, you were taxed. If, if you sent out goods, you were taxed. And, and, and Capernaum has a, 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 a significant commercial fishing industry. And Jesus is walking in the open air, the, the Bible tells us, just like a rabbi would do. He's teaching as he's walking. His disciples are following him. And as he's doing that, he comes upon a man named Levi waiting to tax the fishermen who come in with their catch. And the Bible says he's at a tax booth in verse 14. He's a tax collector. Some of your some of your Bibles may may say publican because the Latin word for tax collector is publicanus. And so it literally means a a tax collector. And Jesus sees him, it says. Jesus looks at him and he says two words. Follow me. The same words that he says to Peter and the other disciples earlier. And the Bible tells us that when, when Matthew or Levi heard those words, he rose and he followed him. With only two words, Jesus calls him to stop collecting taxes and start collecting the hearts of men for the kingdom. And Matthew turns with two words from his sin, from his old life, from his occupation, and becomes a follower of Jesus. Now let that sink in for, for a moment. Matthew was a well-known and well-hated man. Tax gatherers are never popular in Jesus' day or in, or in our day. But in the ancient world, they were loathed. They were, they were extortionists. They, the people never knew how much they, they had to pay. The tax collectors cheated them, as I'm sure you've heard many times, for as much as they could possibly get above the law, and they would line their pockets with it. Even even the Greek writer Lucian ranked tax collectors with adulterers, panderers, and flatterers. I mean, see, nothing's changed. There's nothing new under the sun. 
for the people of Jesus' day, April 15th was whenever you saw the tax collector. There wasn't a date on the calendar. I mean, there may be certain times that were declared, like with Mary and Joseph, who had to come to Bethlehem to be taxed. But, but, but tax day was whenever you bumped into the tax collector and whenever he thought he could get something out, out of you. And if you refused to pay, you were arrested or, or worse. I mean, this is, this is, this is like the mafia. And the scene teaches us a few things about Jesus. And it also teaches us some things about following him from Matthew. Given who Matthew is, the first thing is that Jesus wanted the man that no one else wanted. I mean, this man, his only friends are the ones that you see, and they're defined in that second passage. They are fellow outcasts, fellow sinners, fellow tax collectors. And Jesus wants the man, Levi. The man that nobody else wants. Not religious leaders, not the crowd, not anyone. He offered his friendship to a man that everyone else scorned, and rightfully so. I mean, this, this is, he's not a good guy. He's a horrible man. He abuses widows, he abuses orphans, he, he fleeces the poor. And Jesus wants him. And he seeks him out. I want you to notice that it says that Jesus saw Matthew, not the other way around. It says in verse 14, as he passed by, he, that's Jesus, saw Levi sitting in the tax booth. I mean, he is, he's, he's committing the very sin that he's known for when Jesus sees him. And Jesus speaks to him and says, follow me. I would guess that Levi probably looked the other way whenever he saw, uh, uh, the rabbi coming. You don't have a situation like with a leper where they know that Jesus is there. Like last week when they, when the four friends knew that Jesus was in the house and they dug a hole in the roof to let the man down so they could encounter Jesus. Levi's not looking for Jesus. In fact, he, he probably cast his eyes in the other direction. I mean, if you know that you're hated and it's a well-known thing, and people mumble under their breath whenever you pass by, um, you don't typically initiate conversations with people that you know hate you. And for religious people, Matthew would have been avoided altogether. I mean, he'd heard the, the condemning statements and looks, and he'd no doubt received tongue lashings before from the, from the religious leaders. But Jesus sees this man that no one else wants. He speaks to him, and that must have been shocking. Must have been shocking for, for Matthew. And he calls him. He doesn't just speak to him. He calls him to turn from his sin and follow him. Now, the, the impact of the words, follow me, probably doesn't have the same impact uh, on, on us today. It, to follow a rabbi. Jesus is, is, in the, is in the mode of a rabbi. He's got a crowd. He's walking in open air. He's teaching. And he sees Matthew and he says, follow me. To follow a rabbi meant to become one of his close disciples. And Jesus called Matthew to his side to follow him and learn his ways. Jesus calls us in whatever condition we're in. Dirty men, hated men, women engaged in their sin. And the very moment 
He calls you. He calls you out of that. And Matthew was collecting taxes the very moment that Jesus calls him to follow. He was manning the extortion booth when he encountered Christ. God's path to salvation doesn't, doesn't include a trial run. He doesn't call you to climb up higher and then, and then say, uh, clean yourself up and then come and follow, follow me. He condescends. He, he meets us in our sin, in the midst of our mess. He calls us right where we're at. You see that right here. In this, in this passage, he reaches down to the deepest pit and lays hold of you in the lowest hell. And he also associates with sinners and treats them as friends, as we're going to see in the second part of the, of the passage. And he expects his followers to do the same thing as well. I read a really sad story. It's an old story. True story. A man named Hugh Redwood tells of a a woman um, in the in the dock district of of London who who came to a women's meeting that they were having at at, at a church and and she was a she was a sinner. She she'd been living with a with a man um, out of wedlock. They had a they had a baby and uh, she would bring the baby with her and and she came and she liked the meeting. And she came back again, and came back a third time. And, and upon her third visit, the the pastor came to her one day and said, I, I have to ask you not to come back. And the woman looked with question in her, in her face and said, um, the pastor said, the, the other women, they, they say they're going to stop coming if, if you continue to come, so I'm going to have to ask you not to come. And Hugh Redwood says that the woman looked at the looked at the pastor and said, "Sir, I know I'm a sinner, but isn't this where sinners should come? Where else can sinners go but Christ? Where else can they come but here to to learn about Him? They're they're not going to hear what the Bible says about them or about Jesus watching CNN or or, or reading self help books." I mean, the one thing that you will hear whenever you come here and gather is what God has to say. What God has to say about you. What God has to say about grace. What God has to say about, about salvation. This is the very place that, that they ought to, they ought to come. They ought to be invited to come. They ought to feel welcome to come. Because Jesus wants people that no one else wants. I think you can also see that that Jesus is always looking for opportunities to offer grace. He's never off duty. It was as he walked along the lakeside, it tells us, he calls Matthew. Christ, even as he's walking along, he's looking for opportunities. If he could find one man for God, he, he, as he walked, he found him. Now think of how many people that we could gather for Christ if we look for people the way that God does. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 says, Go and make disciples of all nations. As you're going, as you, as you walk through your days, you are to make disciples. It doesn't just mean whenever you go on a short-term mission trip or whenever you're a missionary. It means that as you go throughout your life, as you, as you depart from here today, as, as you go to work on, on Monday, you are to make disciples. You are to, 
to, to look for opportunities to offer grace. This passage also teaches us some things about, teaches us some things about Matthew. Matthew gave up most of all disciples whenever he followed Christ. Now you say, how's that possible? Well, think about it. Peter, James, and, and John, and Andrew were all fishermen. They could go back to their boats. They even did after the cross. Uh, there were always fish to catch. And they could have always returned to that. But Matthew burns his bridge. I mean, once, you, once he resigns as a tax collector, he can't go back and do that again. And with one action, in one moment, by one decision, he puts himself out of a job forever. And, and he could never return to a tax collector's job. That says something to us about how we're to follow Christ, doesn't it? Do you have a plan B? in whatever it is that, that God you believe God's calling you to do? I've actually heard of, of, of men training in, in ministry say that they're taking two majors, so they'll have something to fall back on if ministry doesn't work out. I would say uh, take the non-ministry major and forget about the ministry major, if, if that's what you're thinking. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have to in order to, to, to go out into the world and use that to minister, but just the idea of plan B. Christ calls you unmistakably, unreservedly, completely. It's with, with all you are and with all your heart. The Bible says no man can serve two masters. In Matthew, a tax collector who's called in the midst of his sin gets that, and he commits to the one master who's, who's Christ. And if you do that, you'll, you'll not be put to shame, the Bible says. And think of what Matthew received. For the first time in his life, he got clean hands. From now on, he can look at the world in the face. He might be poorer, life might be rougher, the luxuries and the comforts were gone, but now on his, now his hands were clean and his mind was at rest. He lost one job but received a bigger one. <laughs> Matthew left tax collecting, but he was, he was later given the task of recording the gospel. Think about that. The very first gospel in the New Testament is written by a man that Jesus calls that no one else wants who is in the midst of his sin whenever Jesus saves him and calls him to follow him. It's been said that Matthew left everything but one thing. He didn't leave his pen. And the first written account of the teaching of Jesus was written by Matthew. God used the skills that he had from his unsaved days for, for his kingdom. He had, a, he, had a, he had an orderly mind, a systematic way of thinking. He took down the figures. He had familiarity with, with writing. And God uses all of that. God will use all of your life as, as well. Nothing's wasted by, by God. God, I didn't come to Christ when I was 24, and God didn't waste a moment of my, my time in the business world. I used to present insurance information to people from all walks of life, from brain surgeons to, uh, to diesel mechanics. And now I present Christ to people, big or small, no matter what they do. I learned about people hurting in their sickness, and now I help them hurting in their sin. I, I learned how to organize business matters, and now I organize God's business. God wastes nothing. No matter what you've done, He'll... He'll use that in some way, and he uses Matthew, and he loses one job but receives, a, receives an even greater one. I thought of Woody. I've been picking on him just about every summer, but, but, but learning Mandarin 
in the Marine Corps in order to be a missionary to share the gospel with Chinese. I'm sure Woody never thought whenever he started learning that language, hey, one day I think I'm going to use that to be a missionary. He also got something he was least expecting. He received a changed reputation far beyond what he could have ever expected. Now, all men know the name Matthew, not as a tax collector, but someone who's forever connected with the story of Jesus. Had Matthew refused Christ, he would have had died uh, known as a dishonest man that everyone hated. But now he's known as the gospel writer in one of Jesus' disciples. God never fails a man who stakes his all on him. And that's how grace is offered. In the midst of the sin, regardless of how others are responding to you, He doesn't call you to come up higher. He comes to us where we are, and He pulls us up out of the out of the miry clay, out of the pit. Those are the benefits for those who received it. But grace can also offend those who don't see their need. And that's what you see in verses 15 through 17. As I said, Mark uh, trans, uh, just, just transfers us from the seaside to this house with, without really any transition other than and, verse 15, and he reclined at the table in his house. As he did that, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus. That's significant. And his disciples. That's also significant. For there were many who who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating, fellowshipping with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? There are many other tax collectors and known sinners who are with Jesus reclining as well. Not just Matthew. And to recline meant to uh, meant, meant laid back, meant enjoying other people's company. It meant to talk, it meant to laugh, it meant to, to fellowship as, as friends do. Even though there is a massive chasm between the righteousness of Christ and the righteousness or the holiness of these people that he's eating with. And when the scribes looked at Jesus, they saw him acting like he liked to be there. <laughs> and they knew who these people were. And they were offended by that. And when Matthew yielded himself to Jesus, he invites him to his home. And after coming to Jesus, he wants his friends to know Jesus as well. And his friends were just like Matthew were before Christ. And Jesus treats them the exact same way that he treats Matthew in the midst of his sin. Matthew didn't have any respectable friends. (laughs) His friends were among the outcasts like himself. And Jesus gladly accepts the invitation And he's found in this place with sinners and tax collectors. And that's exactly one of the places that God should find us as well. We're called to be friends of sinners. And they aren't found in here. Oh, we're all sinners in here. But but that's not what Jesus is talking about in this passage. He's talking about people that would never come in here. 
I would say one of the greatest reasons that we don't see more people come to Christ from a human standpoint is we don't know anyone who needs Him. We, we don't have the relationship with, with people who need Christ on this level in order to share Christ with them. I would say the greatest barrier to witnessing is, is the walls of this building. It's not the, the discipleship plan or, or, or knowing the, the Romans road. And we don't go where they go. And if, if they would invite us, uh, some of us would, would think ourselves too spiritual to be around them. We don't laugh with them. We don't live with them. We don't, we don't, we're, we're not around them. We don't do what Jesus did. And whenever we do, there are people that will be offended by that. Did you see who, what Pastor Farrell did? He went to the films the other night with, with that sinner over there. Now listen, I'm not saying make yourself vulnerable to sin. I can remember right after I came to Christ, my best friend writing me a letter trying to encourage me to come to a keg party that, that, that they were having. And I didn't, I didn't have any friends that, that were, that weren't godless. And he said, you know, maybe, may, maybe if others will see Jesus in you, maybe they'll turn to him as well. So why don't you, why don't you come? You don't have to drink. You don't have to do any of these things. And I was heartbroken for my friends. I tasted the gift of salvation. I wanted them. I wanted them to know Jesus, and I considered going. But I, uh, I gave the note to my pastor and asked him for counsel, and he said, "Stay away. You're not strong enough yet. There'll be a time when you are, and then you can go around them. But but you've only been saved a few months. You could fall right back into where you were. I'm not saying that that Jesus says go to keg parties." We just need to be saved people who get around lost people on a regular basis, as if, that, as if that's not some abnormal thing. If the only time that you witness is to a stranger who waits on you at Cracker Barrel and you give them a track with a tip, that's great, but that's not what God has in mind whenever He says, go and make disciples of all nations. He expects us to find people who are outside of the kingdom and befriend them and share the gift that we've already received. And that's the opposite of what the religious scribes did. Look at the question that they ask in verse 16. The scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating, that's, that's having a good time, fellowshipping with sinners and tax collectors, he said to, to their disciples, to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? This is not really a question that they wanted an answer to. It's a condemnation. It's a, it's a way to slander Jesus. It was said with contempt and scorn. Now, I want you to note that these chicken livers don't ask Jesus the question. They ask the disciples. They don't have guts enough to go to Jesus and say, what are you doing there? They, they try to buffalo his followers. I don't think any verse in the Bible shows better the difference between Jesus and the, and the Pharisees than, than this verse, this scene, and their reaction and Jesus' response. The scribes were the kind of people that, they were not the kind of people that would gladly seek a sinner. They, they were the ones who would gladly tell the sinner what they'd done wrong and do that in their self-righteousness. When they saw a lost person, they didn't see a soul God wants to save. They saw the sin and offered condemnation and arrogant superiority rather than compassion and grace. And that's exactly the opposite, praise the Lord, of what Jesus does. By their standpoint, it was forbidden to even have anything to do with these people. But to Christ, these people are the mission field. 
as a strict law keeper, they were to have no fellowship with anyone outside of their group. They must not walk with them. They must not talk to them. They didn't do business with them. And above all, they must not accept hospitality or give hospitality to such a person. And by Jesus going to Matthew's house and sitting at his table with his friends and offering grace, he was defying their system and it offended them. It scandalized them. They were offended at what Jesus was was doing. I mean, these men saw separation as a witnessing strategy. That's not a witnessing strategy. They said, come up to us, but we'll never stoop down to you. You you earn your way in. Bringing a sinner to God extended didn't extend beyond a moral example, but they lacked the greatest moral example of all, showing mercy. How unlike God. He came to us. He sought us. He saved us. Romans 5, 6 says, While we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. We were the ungodly, and Christ died for us at that moment. And so as His followers, we go, we seek, we share with the ungodly. And being His witness is not just quoting what He said, it's it's having a heart and having His heart and imitating His compassion. It would be much better for you to err on the side of receiving a sinner that's unrepentant than rejecting one that is. And Jesus, I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't ask any of these men He's eating with if they're ready to give up their sin before He shares close company with them. He uses that close company to lead them to forsake it. And religion will keep you from imitating Christ. And it will also cause you to be offended when you see others offering grace. Look at verse 17. Look at how Jesus responds. We'll close. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the, but the sinners. Now, first, this, this, this seems confusing, but it's actually a, a very clear rebuke to the scribes. It sounds at first like Jesus is saying he has no use for righteous people. That, that's not what Jesus is saying. It's not what he means. He's actually holding up a mirror to the scribes to reveal their condition. His point is that Jesus can't do anything for a person who, who thinks that they are righteous. Because they won't respond to his offer because they don't think they have need. They don't come to the doctor for treatment because they don't know that they're sick. The greatest hindrance that you face in going to heaven is not the devil. It's the deception of assessment. It's failing to see how lost you really are. If you knew... If I knew on a regular basis, if I grasped how wicked that I, that my heart truly, truly is and was and the capacity that, that, that it could go to, we wouldn't be looking for how few times that we can gather together and come connect, contribute. We'd be trying to figure out how many times that we could get here because we would know that we need the grace of the Word of God to, sanct, to salt us and sanctify us and keep our hearts from going in the direction that, that it so easily goes. And if you think that, that you have no need, then, then, 
you'll seek nothing, and you'll miss the offer. And Jesus can't do anything for a person who has that poor self-assessment. A man who thinks himself too good to, to need to be saved. And yet the one person for whom Jesus can do everything is the person who is a sinner and knows it. Because that person longs in their hearts for a cure. What's worse in this case is these men that are condemning Christ were the very people who claim to know God and yet refused to share God with the very people that, that needed Him. They were acting like a doctor who had the, the MD after the name but refused to care for a sick person because they were afraid that they would catch whatever the disease was that they would be treating. Not a very good doctor, right? And instead of God's compassion, they were full of contempt and fear. They, they thought they were better. They were afraid to lose their status, their benefits within the religious clique and how others thought of them. And that's a person who will be offended by grace. Jesus never concerned himself with getting the sin of others on him. In fact, that's why he came. To take all of that sin on himself in order to ultimately deliver us from it. And a person like the scribes and Pharisees will never be a, a fisher of men. They won't go to the pond and the bait that they have to offer is not very tasty to the fish. What Jesus is saying here is being a friend of sinners is it's quite simple. A doctor goes where he's needed, people in good health don't need him, sick people do, and I'm doing the same by going to those who are sick in soul and who need me the most. Savior goes to sinners as a doctor meets his patients. And Jesus was a friend of sinners, and as his followers, we're called to be a friend to sinners as well. Don't you bow your heads. There are two scenes here, and there are two points, two themes. Grace offered, and grace offends. Has grace been offered to you? Have you, have you like Matthew, by that, by that one decision, that one moment in time, committed, left, your life and your sin and turn to Christ. It's a, it's a defining point. There may be a lot involved that brings you to that point, but there's a point, there's a moment when you repent and believe and you lay all your weight on Christ and there is no turning back. Everything is laid on Jesus. Has that ever happened? Have you ever done that? Have you ever left your old life behind when Jesus says, follow me? You can do that today. What about offense? Look into the mirror. Have you ever been offended by grace? Something even that I preached to you this morning doesn't sit well. It offends you because of the truth, not because of my poor ability to communicate it. 
Look into the mirror and remember the same grace was offered to you and that grace is the only reason that you'll be with Christ. And when you met Christ, you were a tax collector and a sinner. And yet, whenever He's done with you, you'll be a perfect treasure of grace, joint heirs with Jesus, holy and beloved and free from sin. But that's all grace. How does God see you? He sees what you'll become in Him, not what you are at the moment. How are we supposed to see others? We're to see what the gospel can make of people and then take that gospel to them. How you see yourself is a friend of Jesus because He's a friend of sinners. Father, as we come before You this morning, just a convicting passage. I found myself asking questions about that how can I show greater compassion? How can I, how can I love people where they're at? Asking myself the question is, is there anything about, about Your grace that offends me, that reveals that, that I'm a religious man rather than someone who's a who's a true follower of You and has Your heart. Oh, Father, I pray this morning, if there's anyone here that doesn't know Christ, maybe they've been toying with the idea or running from the idea, I pray today would be the day, Lord, that they would turn the key, that they would bow their knee to You and receive You as Savior. And, oh, Father, I pray that You would help us to go beyond these walls, beyond whatever is comfortable, And reach people where they're at. Because that's what you did for us. In Jesus' name, amen.